0: Because of the recent wars in Ukraine and Israel, many people believe that a prophecy in Ezekiel 38 is ready to be fulfilled. Today, we're going to look closely at history and scripture to see what they really testify of these things so that we can learn the truth about Ezekiel 38. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and I'm Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for being with me today. Today we are adding to a ginormous series on the end times. Of course, there's always something new to talk about, but these are actually very relevant things. And so I realized that with all of the current events that are happening, i.e. the war in Israel, this issue needed to be elaborated on. Now there's a lot in my end times series. This is gonna be part of a series. I'm adding it to the end of it. So if you are just tuning in, if you've never watched my series, then please go back and binge watch some of those episodes. Check them out. There's a lot of information, a lot of great resources for you to educate you and to edify you on the end times because 90% chance you're probably deceived on some things. Like I was, there is no position on the end times that is fully correct. We need a nuanced approach, a narrow road approach. That incorporates both scripture and history because Bible prophecy is meant to be fulfilled historically. And so, in that conversation, there's a lot of things that come up because many people are deceived about the end times. And so, they misappropriate history, even things that are unfolding right now, like these wars, to Bible prophecy. And they do so incorrectly. So, I've gotten some questions about particular prophecies, or I should say quote-unquote prophecies, Ezekiel 38 is a prophecy, but another one that's very popular that's often associated to Ezekiel 38 is Psalm 83. That's not a prophecy, and we did that last week. So if you did not check that one out, go check that out. A lot of people are talking about the Psalm 83 war or the Psalm 83 conflict or, you know, the Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog, and, and all these things. And so ultimately, what do we make of these things? My goal today is to show you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Ezekiel 38 is a prophecy, but it was fulfilled a long time ago. It has nothing to do with us today. And if you've followed me on my End series, you know that Israel is not the centerpiece of Bible prophecy. Now, that may offend a lot of you, so I invite you and in- encourage you to stay with me because it is the truth. Israel, the state, the Zionist state of Israel in the Middle East is not the center of Bible prophecy. The church is the center of Bible prophecy because the church is God's chosen people. It's the people that God has chosen to save. And so God is giving you prophecy to let you know what's going to happen to God's people. Of course, we're all going to be redeemed, but there is going to be tribulation until that time. There's going to be great deception. There's going to be a counterfeit that invades the church and sets itself up between man and God. Bible prophecy concerns the church, not a political Zionist state of Israel, which is largely atheistic and communistic and could care less about Yahweh, the true God of the Bible. But I digress. That's probably going to offend a lot of people. There's a lot of episodes I've created in the series that have to do with dispensationalism, which is what is the main attitude behind these things, with Ezekiel 38 being fulfilled now, and Psalm 83. So go check out those previous series, especially, like I said, the one on Psalm 83, which, again, it's not a prophecy. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's not a prophecy. So the question is, people who are telling you these things, and they're very confident about it, what more are they lying to you about? Now, they may not be lying to you on purpose. Maybe they're just deceived. But other way, they're deceiving you. And so you have to question everything and test the spirits. I even have a short episode on multiple reasons why dispensationalism is wrong, unbiblical, and deceptive. Go check that out. It's only 30 minutes, and it's packed full of information. Episode six in the series is on Israel and the temple and how the temple is a spiritual reality. All the apostles believed that. Christ taught that. It's all about spiritual things in the New Testament. You can't use the the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament. It's the other way around. But yet dispensationalism, every time you point them to these things, they always go back to the Old Testament. That's because they live in the Old Testament. But another good episode is the episode before that, which is episode 5, where we talk about Abraham's promises being fulfilled. All of these things, guys, if, if you haven't seen them, if you have, then It's going to be good review a little bit for you, but you'll learn something today. But if you haven't, and you're not familiar with these talking points, then go back and watch them because all of these things wrap up together. There's a fundamental theology and assumption when it comes to these Judaism, Jew-focused end times views, which is dispensationalism and Zionist-focused end times views, Christian Zionism. These are deceptions, and there's many fundamental assumptions that are wrong about them. But a lot of people are worried about Ezekiel 38, and they're trying to match current events to the Bible, which I can—I get it. I I can appreciate that. You know, we are—you know, read the writing on the wall. There's a lot of crazy things happening in the world, and it definitely feels like this is the generation. I get it. But that being said, you have to have good— Hermeneutics. If your basics are off, meaning your basic understandings and the basic assumptions, you have to question the assumptions behind everything that you believe. Because if you don't question the assumptions, then you will accept a belief and it could be wrong. So you have to question what is the underlying assumption if the Jews are the chosen people and they're the center of Bible prophecy? What does that assume? Of course, I go into that quite a bit, into multiple episodes on this series and all the things that I've talked about recently as well. So check that stuff out. But if your basics are off, you're only going to do more damage to yourself and to others if you're teaching them. You really are. So you gotta know your pro- your basics, like what are the time prophecies in Daniel and John? Are they days or the years? That's a huge one. If you think they're days, literal days, you're wrong, and you're going to interpret end times events completely wrong. They're years, and that's easily proven. Look at the Daniel 70 weeks episode. You also have to know your history, and where do certain beliefs come from? How did the evolution of thought happen in the last 2,000 years? Where do they, where do things come from? How did, they, how did people think in the past? There's nothing new under the sun. That's what the Bible says. So the lies of the devil will always just you can spot them pretty quick once you get a a feel for the pattern, which is just inversion. And the Jews being the center of Bible prophecy, is an inversion. And if you know your history of where these beliefs come from, which is the counter-Reformation, the Jesuits who inverted end times events to be about the church because the reformers recognized the antichrist power, so they had to take attention off themselves. So they inverted the truth and they said, oh, no, no, the Jews are the center of the Bible prophecy, which is not true. It's the church. It's always has been. But people say with Ezekiel 38 specifically, again, it's a prophecy. It it is a real prophecy, but it was fulfilled a long time ago. But they say that there's no fulfillment. If we read it literally, you can't find a fulfillment of it in history. When in fact, you actually can. There are many, many clues, and we're going to look at that today so that you are confident in this understanding. They are appropriating this to modern events like the Ukraine war, and like what's happening in Israel right now. And there are many, many problems with doing this, many problems. And I hope that by the end of this episode, you will understand that. I I don't care so much that you memorize all these points or you're really, you know, super smart about Ezekiel 38. I want you to discern from this episode, like every other episode, the basics. Like, why is it wrong? What, what is good hermeneutics versus what is bad hermeneutics? What's a good way to interpret the Bible and history? And what's not a good way? That's really my biggest concern with these episodes, is that you see the error and you have a skill and technique on how to navigate future error. That's really what it's all about. But let's get started. The first real point to make is that there are a lot of anachronisms in Ezekiel 38. Now, an anachronism is something that doesn't belong in a period of time. Now, of course, this is maybe not the best word, but my point is, if you're reading Ezekiel 38 as a prophecy that's supposed to relate to modern times, there are countless things that do not make sense from a time period point of view. There are countless timestamps of when this prophecy was relevant that if you're reading it literally, then there is no way this can be fulfilled in the modern age, and I can prove it to you. We're going to look at a few samples. Ezekiel 38, verses 3 through 6. And say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, These places don't exist anymore. And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army and horses, and horsemen, and all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. All of these things I just mentioned. There, I mean, horses still exist, but people don't use horses for warfare. They don't use shields. They don't use full armor. I mean, that's, that wouldn't make any sense. People use light, bulletproof vests and, and body armor, but that's not full armor. Wielding swords, none of this stuff is relevant to modern warfare. Verse 5, Persia, Kush, and Put are with them, all of them with a shield and helmet. Again, these places don't exist. Cush and Put are no, no longer a nation, no longer a territory. Shields, again, shields are not really used in modern warfare verse 6 Gomer and all his hordes again Gomer doesn't exist Beth Togarmah and from the uttermost parts of the north with all of his hordes many people are with you again these places Beth Togarmah and Gomer just like Cush and Put and Persia that they don't agree they don't exist anymore they're not territories they're not peoples or nations they were during the time of Ezekiel and shortly afterward during the Persian empires, you'll soon see, but they don't exist anymore. Not for a long time. Now, a couple verses later, in verses 10 and 11, it says, And I say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. Now, these things make zero sense in a situation in a warfare situation where you have drones, airplanes, tanks that can go through walls. I mean, we have a totally different kind of warfare than it was 2,500 years ago when this prophecy was written, approximately. So when it says he's going to go up against unwalled villages, that makes perfect sense 2,500 years ago when walls were important. Today, walls are not important. They're useless. I mean, largely useless. Walls do nothing for you when you have drones and airstrikes and missiles and tanks that can just barrage through walls. I mean, walls are useless. So this doesn't make sense either. All these words that we just covered like swords, shields, bucklers, and other places it talks about spears and bows and arrows. None of this stuff is relevant to modern warfare. So that should be a red flag. It should raise an eyebrow. Another important point is that this particular prophecy is not a vision. Like Revelation, where there are lots of spiritual things being portrayed. John is not telling you there will be a literal red dragon flying around in the air at the end times. He's not telling you that a a giant angel literally is going to appear and throw a chain around the dragon's neck and put him into a giant pit. That's not what's happening. You're not going to see a literal woman in the sky giving birth to a prince that rules with a, a rod of iron. These things are spiritual images that represent realities. Of course, they were already fulfilled as well, but... The point is that this is not a vision. It's an actual prophecy, meaning you can't spiritualize all of the things I just mentioned, like unwelled villages and swords and shields and full armor and bows and arrows. You can't say, well, that's representative of, you know, shotguns and you know missiles and lasers. It's like, You can't do that. This is not a vision. This is a literal prophecy. So if you're going to read it literally, then the only way this would be fulfilled is if There was a bunch of people on full armor, metal armor, with swords and shields and, you know, helmets and and bows and arrows going against unwalled villages in Israel. But Israel, the state of Israel, is not unwalled by any means. In fact, Israel has one of the, you know, greatest border security systems in the world. So this doesn't make any sense if you are going to apply it to today. Also, another important fallacy to avoid is the land equivalence fallacy. Meaning, oh, okay, uh, Meshech and Tubal, you know, they were that they were in that area in the ancient times, so today it must be like Turkey or Lebanon or Libya or whatever else. You can't do that. Because the the prophet, when he received this prophecy, he was receiving a prophecy. What's the context? For his people. And as you'll soon see, the the historical time of this, the context, makes much more sense as to what it's about. Because the Jews were going through constant rebellion and occupation and shifting politically. There was a lot going on in 500 BC timeframe around the Second Temple being built. A lot of stuff going on. And so these prophecies are designed for those people. You can't say that Ezekiel actually meant that 2,500 years from the time that he existed, there would be some future state of Israel, political state, and and a lot of the nations of the earth will come against her. That's not at all what this prophecy is talking about, at all. And again, one of the first proofs of that is the anachronisms in trying to apply it to modern-day warfare. It's just, you can't do that. You really can't. So land equivalency is also a fallacy where where you're trying to tie pieces of land or territory or nations that exist today to nations that existed 2,500 years ago and say that there's a prophetic significance. You can't do that. Because again, that's even, people who read this literally say, oh, you see, it's gonna be the Ezekiel 38 war with Israel. Well, if you read this literally, you don't have a way to e- equivify the nations that are listed so you have to use the land equivalence principle but that is figurative so you're not reading literally anymore do you see the problem it, it's really it's really quite silly you kind of shoot yourself in the foot but people in ezekiel's day knew who these who these tribes and nations were they were very you know familiar to them so i want to read you a little bit of an article i'll put this in the in the uh, resources there's, there's some great information here, but just to visually lay it out with a map. And you have a map here of you know, all these ancient territories and, and where these people were. But let's read a little bit about it. When we, realize, when we analyze this map, we see that every nation mentioned falls within the boundaries of the Middle East. Magog is modern-day Turkey. Meshech is modern-day Turkey. Tubal, also Turkey. Togarma Turkey. Gomer, modern-day Turkey, Kush, modern-day Egypt, put modern-day Libya, Persia, modern-day Iran. Most futurists believe this text refers to Russia, hence the perceived relevance of this prophecy as of the Ukraine war, but it does not. Some translations say Gog is the prince of Rosh, and many futurists, meaning people who believe everything's in the future, like dispensationalists, say that Rosh is a reference to Russia because of their literary similarity. However, this is an unnecessary transliteration of the Hebrew word Rosh, which means chief. Gog is merely the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, not the prince of Rosh and Meshech and Tubal. Furthermore, Ezekiel refers to Togarmah as being from the uttermost parts of the north. Togarmah was located in modern-day Turkey, meaning the furthest north this invasion originated was Turkey, not Russia, which is much further north compared to Turkey, of course. So again, understanding historical context and understanding where all of these things were related in ancient times, what do they mean? What do they mean for the people of the time? Not reading your expectations and your views backward in time and trying to, you know, string together a, a interpretation from that. That is the wrong way to read the Bible. And a lot of people are doing it, sadly, and a lot more are leading people astray. So, you know, what can you do? But it is what it is. We're living in the end times. This is proof because there are more and more deceptions, more and more false teachers. But another point I want to elucidate is that the target of this invasion is Israel, which is obvious. But there's some importance there. Ezekiel 38 verse 8. After many days you will be mustered, in the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. His people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. Now, again, this is about Israel. Of course, it's about Israel in the past, 2,500 years ago. But what is is the context here? Well, unwalled villages, again, doesn't apply to modern-day Israel. Ezekiel, as you'll soon learn, was around the time of the Babylonian occupation. And this prophecy was before the exile was finished. God is giving a prophecy that after the exile is done, the Babylonian exile is done, of course, Persia conquers Babylon that there will be something that's happening there are going to be a bunch of forces mustered against the jews now why does that make sense well it makes sense because after the babylonian exile where everything was left to ruin and the jews came back they're coming back into unwalled villages they're very vulnerable it's a time of extreme vulnerability for the jews but again if you are trying to find a modern appropriation for this, you're not going to see it because you're ignoring very important historical context. So if people insist on reading this literally, which you should, it's a literal prophecy. The problem you have is that there's too many timestamps that do not work for this being a future prophecy, meaning like it was future for Ezekiel, but not future meaning for us. Makes sense. There's too many timestamps of ancient civilization. There's also many reasons why it can't be relevant to the future, which I just discussed. Land equivalency doesn't work. If you are using it, you are misappropriating history and you're not interpreting literally anymore. You're using figurative interpretation. You're saying, well, you know, Meshek is, is just Turkey. That's what it, it's a figurative thing. Well, then you're not reading it literally anymore. So you see, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot with this whole dispensationalism thing, but I digress. Again, this is not a vision. It's a literal prophecy, so there's no reason to spiritualize anything. It's it's meant to be read literally. So all of these nations that we just listed, and you'll see them again, they existed in Ezekiel's time. They had a motive to attack Israel because Israel was ripe for the picking after the exile. And all of the descriptors, like shields and bucklers and swords and bows and arrows, match the technology of the time. So there is zero motive to believe that this has to do with us, but rather was fulfilled around the time of the Babylonian exile. Now, I wanna, the next point I want to focus on is the identity of who Gog is. Because a lot of people, again, just like dispensationalists do with the Antichrist, because they believe in a personal Antichrist rather than seeing the counterfeit that has put itself up between man and God in the church, which is the Pope. They see the Antichrist as a person, so you gotta pin the tail on the Antichrist. Who's the is it Elon Musk? Is it Obama? Is it Trump? Is it, you know? Yeah, you know, put your put your person in the question mark. In the same way, they are trying to pin the tail on the Gog, on who Gog is and figure out, oh, is it is it Russia? Is it Iran, is it, you know, whatever, all this stuff. And everybody's just so confused. It's really a clown show. Watching just this ongoing worry and unnecessary concern with something that's already been fulfilled. It's really silly. But if we can find the identity of Gog, if we can identify an ancient candidate then that is consistent with, with everything that we've looked at, the historical context, the time, the motive, then that gives us another reason to believe that this is in the past. Now, Gog, I'm going to say this. I'm just going to say it outright, is that Gog is likely Haman, which is the chief uh, prince of Persia who was basically seeking to destroy the Jews during Esther's time. If you're familiar with the book of Esther, you know what Haman was doing. He was trying to rally practically the entire empire against the Jews, and he failed. It came on his head, and he he basically lost horribly. God enacted judgment on the Persians through that. But we're going to build up to that, and you'll see exactly why that is probably the truth. Ezekiel 38, verse 2, it says, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So Gog is a chief prince meaning he's not he's not a king he's not like the emperor or the king but he is an official within a kingdom that is the highest rank or one of the highest ranks Now we know in Esther chapter 3 verse 1 through 2 after these things king Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadatha and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So Haman is a person in the Persian emperor's court. He's a chief prince that has the highest position of authority. All the other kings and princes within the empire, are paying homage to Haman. So, that checks out, which is very interesting. Now, Haman was also an Agagite, which is what we just read, meaning he was a descendant of a person named Agag, who was in the Bible, who was a king. He was a king of the Amalekites. And you know that from Samuel 15, 1 Samuel, verse 22 through 23. And Samuel said, has the Lord Oops, I mean, uh, 1 Samuel 15, verse 32 through 33. So it reads, Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, who was a pagan tribe that got judged by God. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death has passed. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So not a pretty ending for Agag, but Agag was the king of a pagan nation, Amalekites, who were very much at war with the Israelites, and they got judged. They're no longer around. They haven't been around for a very long time. But Haman being an Agagite, every time you see an ite, the, the source is whoever the original father was. And Agag was basically the father of that tribe. So Haman was related to Agag. Now, there is a connection between, this is the important point why I mentioned this. There's a connection between Gog and Agag. Very, very important. I want you to compare, for example, Numbers 24-7. This is the ESV. It says, water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So Agag is mentioned here in Numbers 24 7, obviously as a king and with a kingdom. But if we look in the Septuagint, if we look in the Septuagint and the translation that comes up says this, you just type this Numbers 24 7 Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was done in several centuries BC, it says this, there shall come a man out of his seed And he shall rule over many nations, and the kingdom of Gog shall be exalted, and his kingdom shall be increased. And in this particular translation of the Septuagint, Gog is compared to Agag. Now, some manuscripts, this is another important thing, where where we looked at, for example, in Esther chapter 3, where Haman is mentioned as the Nagagai, and he was promoted and I believe also Esther 9 verse 24 mentions that he's an Agagite. Some manuscripts, and you can look this up for yourself, they they don't say he's an Agagite. They say he's a Gogite. So Gog is Agag is an Agagite is a Gogite. Hopefully that makes sense. A lot of tongue twisters there, but Gog and Agag are referring to the same thing. They're the same person with the same origin, just slightly different syllabization of the same thing. This is very important because another piece of evidence that we have is in Ezekiel 39:11, where God talks about the end of Gog's armies. He says, "On that day, I will give to Gog a place of bur- for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea." It will block the travelers, for their Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the Valley of Hamon Gog. Now, this is an interesting linguistic clue here. Again, you have to remember we're, we're talking in English, but Hamon Gog, referring to the person who's going to be buried there, who's leading all this charge, and we know Haman is a good candidate for that. We also know that Haman is an Agagite which Agag refers to Gog, so Haman could also be called Gogite or Haman of Gog. And the valley where he will be buried that God is reserving for him is going to be called the Valley of Hamon Gog. Do you see the connection? The valley is referring to Haman, the Gogite, the Valley of Hamon Gog. So these things are all very related. Very, very important to understand because, again, all these places listed like Meshech, Tubal, Magog, Togarmah, Gomer, all these things were in the Persian Empire. And Ezekiel's time, right before the Babylonian exile was over, is very much relevant and relating to the events that transpired once the Jews were in the Persian Empire with Esther and Haman who basically rallied the entire empire like to create a day where they could just go kill all the Jews like the purge basically and of course the Jews ended up killing them but the point is this when you t- when you look at all of these things together it's very clear i would say beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt that Gog is Haman the Persian prince, basically one of the chief princes of Persia at the time. There's too many parallels to ignore. And honestly, that's the most likely explanation. It fits the historical context. It fits the motive. There's linguistic clues. And we know that there's a lot of relationship between Gog and Agag. We see that from the Septuagint, where the Jews who translated the Septuagint saw a relationship between Agag and Gog, so much so that for them it was interchangeable. So it's very clear that this is relating to Haman. And another point is the historical significance, meaning it was relevant during that time. Haman was right after the Babylonian exile. It was future for Ezekiel, but not obviously future for us. So it's definitely more historically, contextually relevant. Now, I want to narrow the time down that we've we've kind of put some markers in different places. We've seen how this relates to the past. Now, let's narrow the time down and see exactly what's going on. Ezekiel was prophesying from Babylon around the 6th century BC. So, from about 596 to 570 BC. Esther, the events in Esther happened during the Emperor Xerxes I. And that was around the 5th century BC, it's about 100 years later, around 486 to 465 BC. So the point is that these events that Ezekiel foresaw or was given was about a century in the future for him, about 100 years in the future. Of course, they're ancient for us, but how do we know that? We know that because all the the nations listed are listed in the Persian empire. So we're going to take a look at that, another little map for you that you can reference on your own. This is the Archimeneid Empire at its greatest extent under Darius. First, we know that the army of Ezekiel 38 is both multinational and widespread, originating from Kush, which is modern-day Sudan, Put, modern-day Libya, Persia, modern-day Iran, Togerma, Meshek, Tubal, Gomer, and Magog, which is in Turkey, not coincidentally, these nations formed the border of the Achaemenid or Persian Empire in the 5th century BC. So you can see where the, where the empire was put. Kush, Libya, you know, uh, Iran, Persia, all these nations are, are forming basically the, the Persian territory that was occupied at the time. And of course, Israel is, Jerusalem is right in the middle of all that. Therefore, because Ezekiel 38 says that the army originates from these nations within the Archimedes Empire, it is best to see this army as being composed of the entire Archimedes Empire. This is important because the book of Esther depicts an empire-wide conflict between the Jews and the non-Jews. Now, again, I'm not going to read all this. This is from Esther 8. Uh, You can reference it yourself. But basically, what what happened with, with Esther and the Jews... Mordecai Haman—it's actually a very fascinating story. It's really quite fascinating how it all unravels and then perfect justice is dealt. It all comes back on Haman, but Haman basically descri- is basically tries to Esther eight describes Haman convincing the king that listen the Jews are rebellious. Look at the records that they're going to just rebel. You know, they're very nationalistic, whatever. We need to wipe them out because they're a threat to the empire. So the king makes a decree, an empire-wide decree. 127 provinces are listed. And basically, that decree ends up getting reversed because of Esther, who, who wins the king's favor. And along with Mordecai, who also was like Esther's caretaker in some way. And they they basically end up getting, God gives them favor in the emperor's eyes. And as a result, the Jews are given legal right to basically defend themselves on this purge, on this purge day. If you've seen the movie, The Purge, it's basically just like that. Like there was one day decree that, okay, you can go slaughter the Jews, which is pretty crazy. But they're given the right to defend themselves. The, The decree is reversed. And this causes massive confusion in the empire because a lot of people started to fear the Jews. And so some people wanted to attack the Jews. Some people wanted to basically not do that. And so they aligned with the Jews. There was a lot of confusion and you basically had also the Jews shortly coming out of the Babylonian exile. They were conquered by Babylon, and so there was a lot of unwalled villages, a very vulnerable time for the Jews. They're not, they're, they were very dispersed. And so all of this is the historical context of what happens with Haman, the Emperor, the decrees regarding the Jews, Esther, Mordecai, and of course the battle that ensues. Now let's look at the battle, because the battle gives us further clues that this is not about the future, but actually something that happened in the past. Ezekiel 38 verse 16, you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land and the nations may know me when through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God is going to use as usual, just like he used Pharaoh and all the villains of the story to glorify himself and show his power and might. A couple verses later, in verse 21 through 22, it also says, I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. This is a very important detail to the prophecy. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. Pretty crazy, but... The verse about every man's sword will be against his brother. Very interesting, again, marker for understanding how this was actually fulfilled. Because again, if we compare Esther to these prophecies, the accounts in Esther are very clear that this was the battle that God was foreshadowing through Ezekiel. Esther 9, verse 16. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So this is important for two reasons. First, the number itself is enormous. 75,000 people that were killed is a large battle. That's a very significant battle. Now, another thing that's important to understand is that usually when you have battle accounts and what the results of the battle was, the Bible tells you that God struck down, you know, X amount of people. Like when the angel of the Lord struck down like 180,000 Assyrians just in one fell swoop. I mean, it's always basically given credit to God, either that the Lord gave him that victory or the angel of the Lord was involved in some way. So another thing to keep in mind is that the amount, what is the point? The amount in this battle was probably much greater than 75,000 because this just says that the Jews killed 75,000. Obviously God was on their side, but the point is the amount is probably bigger because God was raining down judgment and very much involved in this situation. Now, another important point going back to the, the whole point about the um, people were gonna be raising their swords against one another, each man against his brother. We see this in Esther eight and nine. Esther 8, verse 17. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. This was the Lord's doing. God gives favor to his elect in the eye, just like he gave favor to the Israelites in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they plundered them, basically before they left for the Exodus, this is the same thing. People were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of God's people, basically. And as a result, they're like, oh, no, no, we're Jew too. And so this, now you have an interesting situation. Let's look at one chapter later, Esther 9. All the officials in the provinces and the satraps, which are kind of like governors, and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So what what do you have now in this empire-wide situation? Remember, this is not just like a city. This is an empire-wide edict, 127 provinces. The entire empire is now thrown into confusion because with the second edict, where basically the Jews are allowed to defend themselves, Mordecai's in power, Esther is basically influencing the king a lot of people persians citizen persian citizens said you know i don't want to be on the wrong side of history i'm a jew too i'm 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 declared a jew and and the, the governors were helping the jews so you have imagine for a moment the amount of chaos in the persian empire as a result of this situation god threw the entire empire into chaos meaning you had persians that were fighting against persians which fulfills what it says in Ezekiel 38 verses 21 through 22, I believe. Every man's sword will be against each other. Did that happen? Yes, it did. The the Persian empire was completely thrown into confusion. So Haman's attempt at genocide basically fails. So what do we take from this? Well, the, the conclusion to take is that the accounts in Esther, when they're carefully compared to the prophecy of Ezekiel show that this has a historical fulfillment right after the Babylonian exile during the Persian empire, where the events of Esther are recorded with Haman, the chief prince, trying to organize basically an empire-wide genocide of the Jews and getting totally destroyed. I mean, tens of thousands of people were killed on Haman's side. Haman, who is also Gog, Convinced the king to basically create a world, or um, yeah, I mean, worldwide at that point, that was the world to them, but an empire-wide edict, like a purge. But, of course, many joined out of fear with the Jews, and the empire was thrown into confusion, and Persians helped kill the Persians. It was a huge battle. Huge. I mean, we're talking tens and tens of thousands of people. That is an enormous battle. And that fits all of the descriptions of what Ezekiel prophesied, what God prophesied through Ezekiel. So a couple final thoughts on this, wrapping it up. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is this. This is why it's so important to have sound interpretation principles when you read the Bible, when you interpret prophecies. What is the context of this prophecy? Historical, linguistic, surrounding text, cultural, archaeological? What what do these contexts tell you? Is there a literal aspect to this or is it a vision? When you read Bible prophecies, you should ask yourself, is it, is it a vision like Revelation or is it an actual literal prophecy? Because there's both of those throughout the Bible. And so sometimes if it's a vision, it's important to understand spiritual metaphors and what things represent. But when it's a literal prophecy, like this one is in Ezekiel 38, you have to understand your history and you have to understand archaeology and principles of archaeology, like land equivalency. That's a fallacy. You cannot tie modern-day Turkey to, you know, Meshek and Tubal. You can't try to say, well, you know, Russia's Gog, because, you know, it's kind of like this, or it doesn't at all, that's not at all relevant, is the point. So you have to ask yourself these questions. You have to really understand history. You have to ask yourself the context. The people in Ezekiel's time, which this prophecy is about, were going through a lot of political unrest, a lot of shifting between Babylon and Persia, and, you know, judgments, wars. I mean, it was... A very conflicted time for the people of God, for the nation of Israel, where at the time the, the the identity of the people of Israel was constantly being scattered because of their rebellion, first and foremost. That's important to remember. But nonetheless, God saved his people always, but they were going through a lot. And so prophecy that Ezekiel was given did not have to do with people thousands of years in the future. That makes zero sense. Think about that. I mean, even even that, which I didn't write this down, but what does that say about God? If his people needed him then with all of these things happening, all of these things happening, all of these changes and shifts and political situations happening, and God, instead of giving them a prophecy about Okay, what's, How do we get through this? What's going to happen? Give us some confidence. That's what prophecy is about. It's supposed to give you confidence in the Lord. No, no, no. He's going to give. He's actually giving a prophecy about people twenty five hundred years in the future. Do you see how like utter nonsense that is? What that would make God look so whimsical and so like, you know, like he doesn't care about his people's struggle during the time. It would make Ezekiel like completely irrelevant. Why would Ezekiel the prophet who is in the Babylonian captivity prophesy about something 2,500 years in the future? It really just makes zero sense. Ezekiel 38 is not about a future war for countless reasons. It was fulfilled 2,500 years ago approximately during the Persian Empire, during the Archimenean Empire and during the events described in Esther which, like I said, were around the 5th century BC. So if this is all new to you, then please check out the previous episodes in my series. It's going to arm you with the truth. It's going to arm you with the basics and sound principles of interpretation because many people are deceived. Many have been fooled by dispensationalist teachings. Dispensationalism is very popular, but they don't know where these teachings come from. They... Try to push the idea of a future millennial kingdom, of a chosen people by the flesh, a future physical temple, the seven-year tribulation, sometimes a rapture. All these things are myths, people. They're inversions designed to deceive you and to hide the identity of Mystery Babylon, which is the papacy. The first beast is the papacy. And actually, Mystery Babylon, I, I will correct that a little bit. It is the papacy, but Mystery Babylon represents the final iteration of this Antichrist power. And that at final iteration is a Christian nationalist worldwide system, just as it was for 1,400 years through the Roman Empire and the Pope. And you had the nations of Europe, the kings of the earth giving their power to the Pope for 1,260 years. And really, if you count from August or from uh, Constantine, not Augustine. It's about 1400 years. Long time. Very long time. A a power, an empire that was longer than any of the previous empires. You think that's going away? The answer is no. It's coming back in full force. And that's really the thing to be watching for. But they they don't understand. People who teach these things, they believe that we're in the Gog and Magog War and that we have the Psalm 83 conflict happening. But look... If things do escalate, and maybe they will, because certainly this is a dialectic designed to bring about a final solution, that final solution being world peace. If things do escalate and you see things that people believe the fulfilling of the prophecy, oh, the Jews have built their third temple. And look, this Yannicka guy that's so popular right now, he walked into it, he proclaimed himself to be God, or maybe Trump walks into it or whoever know for certain that these are being coordinated to deceive you. These are being coordinated to deceive you so that you believe that Bible prophecy has been fulfilled. And why is that important? Because the book of Revelation says that at the end of time, people will worship the beast. Now, the beast is the system, meaning they will pay obedience and worship to the system how that's going to be all put together. There are some theories I don't think anybody really knows, but the truth is that the papacy is the beast and it will come back to power. The Pope is actively rallying the world's religions. He's the peacemaker. He's the one behind climate change. It's all coming into a head, folks. And if you have your eyes on Israel and you think Israel is the center of Bible prophecy, you are taking the papal bait and you are not seeing clearly. So I hope this has armed you. I'm gonna put the resources, if you wanna do some more reading and look at those maps in the show notes or whatever, the posting for this particular episode. If you have any questions, put them in the comments or you can email me, twitter at danceoflife.com. I'm happy to chat with you. But I hope this has edified. You hope it's strengthened you. Learn to read the Bible and history appropriately because we are living in a very deceptive time. Until next time, take it easy and God bless. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.